previously on the I Am Story podcast. It was a horrible thing to witness. His feet were hanging out the back of the truck, but the rest of his body was compacted like so much garbage. It was shocking. It was, it was shocking. And uh, when we got the news that they had got crushed up in the truck, we had to keep on working. That's when he said, we got a strike. It wasn't no, well, let's think about it. Let's do it. But I assure you of one thing, on behalf of the 375,000 members of our international union, that so long as they want help and they want support, by God, they're going to get that help and that support. As long as you continue to break the law, there will be no further talk at any level of government. Lobe said, Lobe said that he wanted garbage to pile up as high as the apartment. Let's help him pile it up. We were trying to find some glue to hold this stuff together to guarantee that folks would stay together the uglier this thing got and came up with the slogan, I am a man. I am a man. I'm a man. I feel proud. I knew, you know, I was doing the right thing. Like I said, I am a man. But let me say to you tonight that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. It was now seven weeks since the sanitation workers' strike began. Church leaders and civil rights groups were on board, and the strike was putting serious pressure on the city with boycotts and picketing and garbage piling up. The mayor and city council had stopped negotiating, and local media had turned their backs on the strike. That's when Martin Luther King Jr. arrived. You are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. I'm Lee Saunders, president of AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. The sanitation workers' strike in Memphis in 1968 was the greatest challenge my union had ever been part of. And once Dr. King joined the fight, pretty much everyone involved felt like the tide was turning. Just to have Dr. King come to Memphis and identify with the strike really was an incredible event for these workers. We were pretty confident we were going to win the strike. It wasn't just a labor action anymore. It had become a kind of showdown between the old racist world of the South and a new, more progressive America, where everyone deserves a decent wage and some dignity. Dr. King had just agreed to come back to lead a mass march 
that would really turn the nation's eyes on Memphis. It seemed like a perfect plan. And all the organizers were now focused on making sure this mass march was a success, including AFSCME's own Bill Lucy. We had to do some work with the police so, so that they would understand what we were trying to do. We could never know how the police was going to react to that many people marching. Uh, and there's some police leadership there that you could talk to. The chief of police, Frank Holloman, actually agrees to develop a route the marchers can take through town. Tomorrow, uh, Friday, when the march is in progress, this entire area that is bounded by Second on the east and Main on the west, there will be no traffic, and we are appealing to the citizens in view of this particular situation uh, to uh, cooperate. With the march is expected to be very big. A lot of people are supporting the strike now, including dozens of church congregations and a whole lot of young people, especially students. We had what was called Black Mondays initially. So I started coming on Mondays and then Tuesdays and then Wednesdays and Thursdays <laughs> Fridays. Joe Calhoun is a senior in high school when the strike takes off. I uh, actually moved to Memphis in 1967, but I had never been to an all-black school. I was a military brat, so, you know, we lived all over the world. So having done that, when I arrived here, I was just very put off by what I saw. People being restricted in things like black people had to go through the uh, back door to the upstairs of the movie theaters, back of the bus, those kinds of things. And it also made me angry, um, just the fact that people accept, accepted things the way they were. And so I felt like it was an opportunity to try to make a difference, you know. So I ended up staying down there for like maybe three weeks. I stayed in the attic of Claiborne Temple and uh, we would make signs. We made the I am a man signs. And then we were marshals for the marches in the daytime and we'd just hang out and go to Wonder Bread and get some uh, day old honey buns and <laughs> donuts and stuff. I was a 22 year old journalism major and um, I was a student photographer in photo services. And um, my boss called me in one day and said, there's this union that needs some pictures taken. Are you interested? Well, I'm a 22-year-old college kid, extra money. I jumped at it. With the strike gaining momentum, the union, asked me, decides to hire a student, a white kid named Richard Copley, to capture the key moments. To be honest, I, I didn't, uh, I, I hadn't been paying any attention to it. Um, I know at the time I felt that, that uh, there was injustice and that uh, it had to be taken care of. I mean, it was you can't treat people like animals and expect them, you know, to do your bidding. But I have to tell you, I had no idea what I was getting into. Before the strike is over, more than 10,000 students will get involved. But the young people are not all on the same page when it comes to strategy. 
Michael Honey is a labor historian. He wrote an award-winning history of the Memphis strike. In the black community, you also had, you know, the development of really strong militants among black students uh, and young black people in general. Uh, they were, you know, talking about black power, black political power, black economic power. And well, we've, we've got a problem with a group called the Invaders. We've got a problem with groups who are looking for their name to be up in lights. And, and what we it was interesting because they look like Black Panthers by their dress and, and all that. I empathized and sympathized with their ideology. I just could not see the violence. The invaders are young and impatient, and they're not satisfied with simply inconveniencing the city's white leadership. What they really thought when the strike happened was that what you really need is something to scare the hell out of the power structure. So you get the powers that be to be afraid that if they don't settle this strike, it's going to blow up. It's going to turn into uh, urban violence. But the invaders are a small group, maybe 20 to 30 people. And Reverend James Lawson, who's the chief strategist for the strike, tries to draw the young militants in. Yeah, Charles Cabbage. I called Charles Cabbage, said, come and join our committee. Come, come and join the strategy committee. And he really never did. <laughs> he came Monday late. For strike organizers, the invaders seem like a minor annoyance at this point, but their name will flare up later. The day of the march dawns clear and warm. Marchers gather at Claiborne Temple, the church that's become the strike headquarters. But Dr. King is more than two hours late. He came there from New York City with almost no sleep. When he finally does get there, he's brought in in a car. The car swarmed with people who want to see him. And a lot of the younger people uh, started pushing forward, sort of pushing through the ranks of the sanitation workers who would be normally directly behind King. You know, so it wasn't well under control and they decided let's just start marching because that's all we can do in this situation. Several thousand Negro demonstrators are participating in this largest civil rights demonstration ever in Memphis, Tennessee. Many of the demonstrators are carrying the sign, I am a man. They stretch out for several blocks. They're two or three blocks into the march when strike leaders Bill Lucy and Reverend Ralph Jackson both hear an ominous sound. We're on Beale Street, and we start to, we start to hear a glass being broken. I mean, large glass windows being broken. We were at the head of the march, and they began to break glass up at near Main Street. And then, you know, this fear starts to run through the whole crowd and Reverend Lawson gets a, a bullhorn and he directs people to turn around and go back to Claiborne Temple. At that time, Jim Lawson, I heard Jim Lawson's voice saying, turn around everybody. But Jim Lawson is chairman of the strategy committee. So when Jim Lawson said, turn around everybody, all of us at the front began to say, go back, go back. And then all of a sudden, 
King and the people in the front see a, a phalanx of police with riot helmets on and clubs and guns all ready to go and mace. And that's when they take King out of the march. Chaos has just broken out downtown. Chaos has just broken out downtown. All right. Negro youth are smashing windows. I just saw. Oh, that sound you just heard was the sound of a tear gas fired by a police officer in an attempt to thwart this unruly demonstration. We repeat several... Richard Copley, the young photographer, and Joe Calhoun, the high school student, are both in the middle of it. At that point, all hell broke loose. Uh, I was either maced or pepper sprayed, I'm not sure which. So I was taken out of the action almost immediately, but I could hear uh, the, the screams and the shouts and the thuds. It was, uh, it was like a war zone. The Negro youths are shouting at this time, go, go, go. The police have formed a cordon and they're not permitting the march to move any further at this point. It was, it was very scary because you didn't know what was going to happen. You know, people, we ended up having to take the sticks off of the signs because they were using the sticks to break windows. When people started running, they just dropped their sign and just started running because the police were, you know, they had horse, horses and they were running through the marches on the horses. And uh, a lot of the, you know, the signs were lying on the ground and people that were, you know, along the sidewalks watching would just pick them up and start breaking out windows. But the violence was incredible, and it was coming directly from the police. They've been working seven days a week, 12-hour days, because of the strike, and now they just go berserk. And all hell broke loose. I mean, the police is just come out of nowhere on their motorcycles and their cars with the K-9. Cleo Smith, one of the sanitation workers, has a run-in with a policeman and a big dog. And one policeman uh, was standing right in front of me. He had this K-9. He released the dog on me. And as the dog was charging, I hit that dog in the nose. He snapped his holster and said, hit him again. Well, no, I wasn't going to hit him again. <laughs> I mean, he was getting ready to shoot me. So anyway, I, I vanished through the crowd and I went to my mother's house on Pontytop and I re- walked in the house. My mom says to me, she said, boy, you look like you just seen a ghost. And I wanted to tell my mom I like to become a ghost because he was going to kill me for hitting that dog. Hundreds of people go to the hospital, all kinds of, you know, broken bones and contusions and cuts and so forth. At this time, Memphis police appear to have Main Street cordoned off, and most of the Negro youths and other demonstrators, the strike sympathizers, the Memphis garbage collectors, are moving back toward the church. So people go into the temple to um, get relief from the police. And they're in there with, you know, cuts on their heads and blood streaming down their face. And so there's a standoff at Claiborne Temple for several hours. This is Ray Sherman on the scene again. Police now 
have cordoned off the area around Claiborne Temple for this massive demonstration that went wild and crazy began earlier today. Many of the Negro demonstrators have taken refuge inside the church from the tear gas that still fills the air. And inside the leaders... And then an interesting kind of battle is ensuing outside, which is young people on the roofs of buildings throwing rocks at the police. And kind of a standoff occurs for a while where there's people sort of protecting the church outside. And what happens? The police come and start shooting tear gas canisters into the church. There went another tear gas canister. Police just fired a federal tear gas gun toward Claiborne Temple. Apparently, some youths still hurling objects at officers. I'm going to take refuge momentarily from the tear gas. The scene finally begins to calm down and union leader P.J. Champa begs the young people to go home. Now, any activity here is only going to bring more violence and counterbalance. We don't want to lose sight. We don't want to lose sight of the objective. This objective today was a march in support of the sanitation workers who have been on strike for seven long weeks. We still have that victory to win before we move on to any other. It was, uh, it was like a war zone. Fortunately, I had a bottle of water, and I was able to clear my eyes and take, take pictures uh, of, of arrests being made. I think there was something like 200 arrests, which is incredible. Probably the saddest thing that happened on that day was um, Larry Payne, a 16-year-old boy, was shot and killed by a Memphis police officer who accused him of uh, looting. Uh, a very, very, very sad day for my hometown. hours after the dust settles, Dr. King and James Lawson hold a press conference. They were those on the sidelines who took advantage of the situation uh, to create some violent confusion. They were not in the ranks of the demonstrators, and uh, I think it was very unfortunate that these elements entered. We do not condone their violence as we do not condone the historical violence of this society of ours. We are now saying to the city, will you please listen? Will you please recognize that in the heart of our city, there is massive cruelty and poverty, 
and indignity, and that only if you remove it can you have order. We are not relenting in our effort to keep the movement in Memphis going forward. We will not be turned around. At this time, there will be 4,000 troops in this city by 6 p.m., 250 Tennessee Highway Patrol. We're here to assist, and the governor's message is that he is going to maintain law and order. I think this is important. Uh, the National Guard was called in, and they came with their tanks, uh, which was frightening, allegedly protecting the streets of Memphis. and. Um, a curfew was put into place uh, as well. There is hereby ordered and invoked a curfew which requires all citizens to be off the streets of the city of Memphis by 7 p.m. tonight and remain off the streets until 5 a.m. What needs to be done will be done. Uh, we don't organize burnings essentially, we organize people. If people burn, they burn. Right after the march, a lot of fingers are pointed at the militant group, the invaders. But Kobe Smith, one of their leaders, is coy when he's asked whether they were responsible for the mayhem. Well, I can't, I can't actually say concretely whether we... Uh, we're glad to see the city of Memphis wake up to reality. For myself, I'm, I'm uh, just like a weather vane. If the wind blows one way, if the people here want nonviolence, Whatever decisions they make, I'm going to have to go along with black people. Uh, I'm glad to see people get together by any means necessary. But many of the strike leaders will come to doubt that the invaders played a big role. James Lawson believes a lot of the window breaking was probably petty criminals who were frustrated by the strike's downtown boycott. Which we learned about after that march. Criminals pickpocketers in downtown Memphis told us that we had dried up the city downtown so they could not work. They had no way to do the work they claimed they did. They, some of them called it our work, stealing purses and wallets and whatnot. But who started it off? Who broke the first windows? Organizers believe the chaos was set off intentionally. The spiritual forces of wickedness in the United States sabotaged the march. I think there were people who wanted the march to fail, who wanted Dr. King to be blamed for a, a new kind of, of thing that he could not control. I have no doubt that the FBI was in it. Uh, we learned that a major Army intelligence unit was in Memphis on the day of the march. Dr. King's son, Martin Luther King III, believes a lot of powerful people wanted to discredit his father that day, in part because of his stance on the Vietnam War. Dad, on April 4th, one year from the day of his assassination, did a speech called Beyond Vietnam, where he talked about the war being immoral and wrong and what it was doing. And he went from being loved by a segment of the community to being the number one enemy of the, of the state. 
Everywhere King went, his life was on the line. He was being followed by anti-communists. He was being followed by racists. He was being followed by the federal government. He talked about a radical redistribution of wealth and resources. That if, if we wanted to save our nation, we needed to do that. That's what the Poor People's Campaign was, a radical redistribution. That's what Dad was talking about. And, and the fact that he was able to bring blacks and whites and Native Americans and Hispanic and Latino Americans, bring people together, that is uh, something that scares some people in our society. A congressional investigation will later examine the role that government agencies played in Memphis that day. And Dr. King's credibility is seriously shaken. Dr. King, you've been criticized for coming in from outside and then abandoning the march when the going got rough. What's your reaction to that? My only reaction is that I did not abandon the march when the going got rough. I have always said that I will not lead a violent demonstration. We did not run, as the Memphis paper said. We walked very slowly. And as I walked, I was agonizing over what had developed. And I told Reverend Lawson, who had the bull horn, to call it off and turn the people back, which he did. And people in the U.S. Congress are denouncing him. The newspapers have cartoons. Like, there's a cartoon in the Memphis Commercial Appeal King shrugging his shoulders, saying, who, me? And, you know, with chaos in the background. And he's never really had that credibility issue. He's never led a march that turned out like this. And so he's sort of forced to come back. There's there's no way that he can move forward with the Poor People's Campaign unless he can show that they can do a mass march in Memphis without this happening again. I'm trying to answer this question by saying I am absolutely convinced that we can mount right here in Memphis, Tennessee, a nonviolent campaign and another massive demonstration that will be nonviolent. Nonviolence can be as contagious as violence. The sanitation workers are also shaken up by the violence of the march. They have a meeting the next day, and they're trying to decide, now what do we do? And one of the strikers raises his hand back in the room. He says, hey, ain't we going to march? You know, and the town is occupied by the National Guard. Well, that did it. Then they said, yes, we're going to march. So the workers started marching the very next day and kept on marching. This was their strike. And they were marching single file so they could get as close as they could to the National Guard with their bayonets and guns and the the strikers with a picket sign. I mean, the, the, the strikers were walking in front of the National Guard. The National Guard has their M1 rifles and their bayonets tanks and half-tracks, machine guns. They're just marching like they always had. Some of the most powerful photographs of the strike come from this moment. 
It's a long line of sanitation workers carrying I Am A Man signs marked single file down the street. Soldiers on one side, tanks on the other. On April 3rd, five days after the violent march, Dr. King flies back to Memphis to help strike organizers plan the next mass march. He's also going to court with them to fight the city's plans to stop the march. Well, the first thing on April 3rd is that there's a bomb scare on his plane and the pilot says, uh, I'm sorry, there's a delay. Um, There's a threat to Dr. King. We're going to have to search the plane. So they're sitting on the airport for an hour. And I mean, King never knew day to day if he would survive. And he had some premonition and that little incident on the plane (laughs) probably sharpened that. He had a premonition that this might be his last campaign. That night, there's a mass rally planned at Mason Temple. But a big storm has blown in, and organizers figure not many people will come. Uh, King is pretty exhausted, and he asks Ralph Abernathy, who's second in charge of SCLC, if, if he would give the speech. And so King is staying back in his hotel room trying to rest at the, at the Lorraine Motel. But despite the weather, thousands of people do come. Sanitation worker Osea Yule is there with his wife Florence, and so is Cleo Smith. If the church was so full, we, we couldn't even get a seat. We had to stand on the side. The church was just packed. Mm-hmm. And it stormed that night. I never forget that. It stormed. It stormed that night. I knew I was, I was there that night because I, I left home in the rain and thundering and lightning. And when I got there, the place was jam-packed and uh, he wasn't there at that time. So Abernathy goes to give the speech and J- James Lawson gives a great speech. So uh, they're not lacking for great speeches. But it's really Dr. King the people have come to hear. And so Ralph went over to the Lorraine, told Dr. King that the people were there to see him, and they were still there. So Dr. King really got dressed and came to church. The, the lightning, you could see the lightning through the windows, because we were inside Mason Temple playing. <laughs> you know, we run around all up on the third, fourth tier, and uh, we listening too. Jesse Jones is a 14-year-old kid, and he's in the church because his dad is the sanitation workers' leader, T.O. Jones. I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm warning you reveal that you are determined to go on anyhow. Something is happening in Memphis, something is happening in our world. So he said, come on, man, we're going to sit down and listen to him. So we up high at the very top, and we sit down, and I know we'll forget how eerie it was. It was echoing, you know. 
You know what happened the other day, and the press dealt only with the window breaking. I read the article. They very seldom got around to mentioning the fact that 1,300 sanitation workers are on strike and that Memphis is not being fair to them and that Mayor Loeb is in dire need of a doctor. They didn't get around to that. Now we're going to march again, and we've got to march again, in order to put the issue where it is supposed to be. And force everybody to see that there are 1,300 of God's children here suffering sometimes going hungry, going through dark and dreary nights, wondering how this thing is going to come out. That's the issue. And we've got to say to the nation, we know how it's coming out. For when people get caught up with that which is right and they are willing to sacrifice for it, there is no stopping point short of victory. At that time, he was saying to me, just me personally, that we're going to be able to live a, a successful life because it was like we was in bondage and we were looking for a way out of it. And he gave us hope. Dr. King also talks to the crowd about another battle ahead. Because the city has now gotten an injunction, a court order making it illegal for them to hold the mass march. Now about injunctions. We have an injunction and we're going into court tomorrow morning to fight this illegal unconstitutional injunction. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read, of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. I thought it was a tremendous speech, and people really understood what he meant. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. 
I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. To hear him say that uh, he may not get there with us. And uh, the next day, after finding out what happened, Dr. King's words that night would come to be known as the mountaintop speech. The next day actually starts out very promising. Dr. King goes to court with strike organizers and fights the injunction against the march. And their argument is that uh, when people are very aggrieved and very angry, they have to have an outlet. And it's much better to have a mass march when people are angry than to suppress it and then have a riot instead. And they got the uh, injunction lifted so that the uh, march could take place. After their victory, nobody is prepared for what happens next. Bill Lucy was with some of the ministers and union leaders that evening over at Ralph Jackson's office. We were, you know, listening to news. Uh, When the news came over, uh, it had to be 6 o'clock, 6.30. And we were shot. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Police who have been keeping a close watch over the Nobel Peace Prize winner because of this turbulent racial situation. I was home in the bed that evening, and uh, I heard all this commotion outdoors. My wife came in and uh, and said that Dr. King just had got shot. I gets up, goes to the door, people hollering and screaming everywhere. People started running toward the Lorraine Motel and the place was cordoned off, you know, by the police. And... uh, You know, for the next however many days and months, people are wringing their hands. Why wasn't I there? I think people were incredibly bereaved. And the workers especially, you know, they would feel like, well, did I cause this? Was it because of us, you know, that Dr. King died? It wasn't good to be in Memphis that day, especially if you were Caucasian, you know, because, uh, Henry Lowe had a lot of Lowe's barbecue, Lowe's stores, Lowe's washers. Torture. 
vandalized them. You know, that's when the National Guard came in because there was so much damage. The National Guard were just pulled out the day before. Now they're sent back in and the curfew reinstated. The city is very tense. And with the curfew, the strikers have to be careful not to run into police or soldiers. I was about 10, 10 years old. And it, uh, that evening when I heard about his assassin, uh, Martin Luther King's assassination, it was an uh, uproar in the community. And in our neighborhood, the National Guard was called in. I remember the army tanks. Aaron Leach is the son of sanitation worker Baxter Leach. And uh, the National Guards, my dad had just left a meeting and he was just coming home and they got behind him. And all of us was in the window upstairs because we lived on the front of the projects and we can see everything. And I hollered at the window, leave my daddy alone, leave my daddy alone. And uh, he had to tell him where he was coming from, from a meeting, because it was curfew and he was coming home. For Reverend James Lawson, the assassination is doubly painful because Dr. King had been such a good friend and an ally in his work. It, it put the strike in a period of mourning and grief and hurt. It probably justified some of the blacks who called themselves militants, but it was very, very harmful to me personally and to the movement. But he puts his grief aside to keep the strike moving forward. I think the one thing he would want of those of us who knew him well and loved him dearly, he would want from us the continued effort to, through nonviolence, help to change our society. I'm going to say to our strategy committee later on tonight or this morning, and I'm going to say to the people in my parish and the people of the city, we must not let the Memphis movement deteriorate into violence. We must press every energy we have and all the courage we have to see the sanitation workers get justice, and we will see Memphis move hastily to change its name, the black name that it's achieved, because it will not listen to the 20th century. And the peaceful mass march that Dr. King was determined to lead in Memphis, it does happen four days after his death. But instead of Dr. King, it's his wife, Coretta Scott King, who leads it, along with three of her children. The march down Memphis streets, which began at 11 a.m. Memphis time, is still proceeding down the main street. They walk, eight abreast, in total silence. An almost unbelievable, eerie quiet, considering the great number of people walking in the heart of the city. They have come from many parts of this country. Many carrying placards which carry slogans. I think there were about 40,000 people there. And this is a moment where the Labor Civil Rights Alliance really comes to the forefront. AFL-CIO puts in money, AFSCME works its network. All these unions that King had been working with ever since the Montgomery bus boycott, they start sending people down. 
plane loads of people, bus loads of people. It's like the March on Washington all over again, except it's in Memphis. And dramatically, it's absolutely silent. The only thing you would hear was the thud thud of marching feet. It was a silent march. It was a tribute, really, to Dr. King. When we arrived, there were National Guardsmen that surrounded us with the bayonets. And I was, I think I was probably more intimidated and frightened than anything else. I sort of remember marching. I don't remember the street. And I remember because I've seen pictures of mom speaking. And we were sort of very near her. Those of you who believe in what Martin Luther King Jr. stood for, I would challenge you today to see that his spirit never dies and that we will... Dr. King's oldest son, Martin Luther King III, is 10 years old when he marches with his mother that day. And she went to Memphis to lead that demonstration. And I think about that often and how much strength it took. Uh, your husband has just been killed. No one has been captured for, for, for the crime. And yet you went right into where he was to have been and continued in that tradition. That is extraordinarily powerful. concerned about not only the Negro poor, but the poor all over America and all over the world. She comes as um, a leader herself in the movement, which she's always thought of herself that way, but most of the time she was raising a family. But now she had to step up and wanted to, actually, I think, to play that role. concerned about the garbage collectors, the sanitation workers here in Memphis. And this is why he came back to Memphis to give his aid. There was a tremendous commitment toward finishing the work. We're going to continue his work to make every person feel that he is a human being. His campaign for the poor must go on. Everybody would have understood if she didn't show up, um, but the fact that she did, and the nation, the nation and the world saw that because the media was covering it. And so it also helped probably propel and make Memphis do the right thing, whether it wanted to or not. The murder of Dr. King in Memphis is a great embarrassment to the city, and especially to Mayor Loeb. Each of us, heart and prayers are with Ms. King and the King family. Certainly we wish that the incident had happened elsewhere if it had to happen. But each of us knows that violence begets nothing but trouble
everybody, and each of us sincerely wishes that it hadn't happened and regrets that this thing did happen. AFSCME leaders are worried that if the strike isn't settled soon, the city's going to blow up. So they reach out to the federal government, and the president finally steps in. Lyndon Johnson was just outraged by the actions of the city, and particularly the mayor. So he uh, called a fellow by the name of uh, James Reynolds. About uh, 2 o'clock, I had a call from the president, and he asked me why we had not been in Memphis attempting to resolve that dispute. I explained to the president that... uh, James Reynolds is undersecretary of labor and one of the country's top negotiators. He tells President Johnson they have been watching the strike, but it's really not their place to step in. The president said, well, he said... uh, Never mind authority. You're going down as my representative. And I went out to Nashville, got on a plane without a toothbrush or a shirt or anything, and I took off. And by the time that plane took off, I was astonished to see smoke rising from the city of Washington. And uh, I inquired uh, of the stewardess what it was, and she spoke to the pilot, and the pilot was informed from the intercom that there were terrible riots in the city, and there were buildings of fire, and that this was uh, apparently a reaction to the assassination of Dr. King. There are riots going on all over the country, like 130 cities go up in flames. Washington, D.C. is billowing with smoke. The 14th Street corridor of Washington, D.C. is burned to the ground. And so the country was exploding. When James Reynolds gets to Memphis and sits down at the negotiating table, he makes it clear to both sides the strike needs to be resolved for the sake of the country. I just hope I can be a little helpful in provoking your imagination and your train of thought to a resolution of this dispute. It's like a tiny pebble dropped in a calm pool and the rings that are created have gone out and out and out and have created fantastic problems throughout our nation. And they all begin here. I, I had the greatest respect for him. I mean, you know, the president sent him there, and I mean, he, he sent the right guy. We'd probably be on strike now unless for, <laughs> for him. As the negotiations begin, the entire Memphis community is watching. And at this point, everybody thought they had a voice in approving the... Uh, the contract. We will give you eight cents an hour. What a damn of a shame. And we say now that the black community will not accept eight cents, even if the union said so. We will not have it. And the sanitation workers want more now than when they first went on strike. Working with ASME leaders, they've come to understand the benefits workers all over the country are getting, and they want those things too. Promotions, uh, job development, job training, wages. We uh, had to have a grievance procedure, so we had to have 
part of our team, you know, working on that. In my opinion, this strike came about because of a series of unresolved grievances. and the But as AFSCME President Jerry Worf explains to city council, there's one issue that's been controversial throughout the strike. And it's been the one that the newspapers have given their blackest headlines to. And that is the matter of the dues deduction. This is where an employee authorizes his employer in writing to deduct the sum of money from his wages and forward it to the union. It's being done all over this country. There are literally millions of people under this form of deduction. For weeks, Mayor Loeb has been portraying this issue as the union taking advantage of the workers. A union dues checkoff, on which I stated from the start, there could be no compromise. My position is simply unchanged. So this was, you know, the platform for, for Henry Loeb. And we see this in the Republican Party today. This is what they call the right to work law, that, you know, the right to work laws that were passed uh, with the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, King had campaigned against these. He said they don't guarantee you any rights or any work. Uh, what they do is they weaken union organizing because everybody knows if you can go into a job and get higher wages because it's unionized, but you don't have to pay any union dues, guess what? People aren't going to pay union dues. And guess what? Eventually there's no union. You can't run a union that way. You need staff. You need an office. That's what union dues are for. And so this was Henry Loeb's thing. And that was the sticking point till the very end. And he never... Loeb never signed off on allowing the city to collect union dues, but the city council finally did. But only after King was killed. After 10 long days of negotiations, the city council agrees to a settlement and union leaders send out a call for all sanitation workers to meet at Claiborne Temple. The motion is to accept the terms of the agreement that was just presented to you. And Mr. Chairman, the committee representing the workers and negotiating recommends that you vote yes. Go ahead, Brother Jones, take the vote. All in favor of recommendation, let it be known by saying aye. We we'll ask you to restore back to order so we can finish the motion. Those who oppose, will you stand?
It's a day of relief and joy and tears for all the sanitation workers, but especially for their leader, T.L. Jones, who sacrificed so much in his life to get the men a union. T.L.'s son, Jesse, finds him later that day. He's in the back hallway, like this, crying. I run up to him, I said, Daddy, what's wrong with you? He got a letter in his hand. It was a telegram. And it was from the Vice President of the United States of America, Humphrey. And he let me read it. It says, congratulations. You won your fight. You are a national hero. And I cried. Because here is a man the Vice President of the United States of America telling the man that everybody said was worthless and this and that and all of that, saying, you are a hero, congratulations. I proudly hold my head up as a Memphis sanitation worker. They can call me a garbage man, whatever you want to call me. But I know that I stand on the shoulders of giants. My name is uh, Maurice Spivey, and I am the uh, staff rep for Aspen Local 1733. The 1968 strike has reverberated through the decades and inspires today's Memphis sanitation workers who are still fighting to be respected. And it goes back to those famous four words that the Memphis sanitation workers had. I am a man. Before we talk about pay raises, before we talk about Retirement, before we talk about hours of work, I got to make sure you see me as a man. They don't see us as men and women. They don't believe that our backs get sore, our knees go out. So they're trying to break this union. They, they don't want it. They hate that it's around. They think their unions are weak in the South. Uh, but we never miss an opportunity to prove them wrong. And Martin Luther King, in his life and his death, helped build those unions. Historian Michael Honey will go on to talk to many sanitation workers about Dr. King's role in their fight. And so this worker said to me, um, the one thing we can draw out of this is that he achieved what he came here to achieve, which was that we won the strike, we got unionization, we changed the terms of discussion in Memphis, Tennessee. And it's sad that we lost King in the process of that. Uh, but he, what he came here to do, he achieved it. After their success in Memphis, AFSCME negotiators are called into labor fights in many different cities. AFSCME exploded with organizing all around the country. And for Bill Lucy, that young labor organizer who first flew to Memphis the day it all began, he comes away believing they've planted something important in Memphis. So it was a mind change. I mean, just the idea, and particularly across the South, where chain gangs were the order of the day. And now you've got people who are doing the same work saying I got the right to, to have a say. 
it, it changed. Yeah, I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the story of the 1968 Memphis Sanitation Workers' Strike and the origin of I Am a Man. There's been plenty of change for the good since 1968, but the connection between racial justice and economic justice, which was so central to the strike, has never been more relevant. This podcast is more than a compelling history lesson. It's a call to action to fight for the rights and freedoms of working people today. In our next episode, we look at the impact the Memphis strike had on the workers, their families, and many others. I'm Lee Saunders. The I Am Story podcast is an original series from the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees and Ask Me President Lee Saunders. Tiffany Ricci is the executive producer. The show was narrated by me, Miriam Harris. Produced by Rhoda Metcalf and Bruce Edwards of Global Audio. Writing by Rhoda Metcalf. Recording, mixing, and sound design by Bruce Edwards. Editors are Rhoda Metcalf, Tiffany Ricci, and Bruce Edwards. Art direction by Chris Stiff. Thanks to the talented musicians at Epidemic Sound for the music. We would like to thank all the Memphis sanitation workers and their families who shared their stories with us. Dorothy Townsend for her guidance. The Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University the Rhodes College and the University of Memphis for use of their invaluable archives. And a special posthumous thank you to David and Carolyn Yellen for doing such an incredible job documenting the events of the 1968 strike. Thank you to sanitation workers everywhere. Your work is important and you deserve respect, gratitude, and the right to a union. When workers stand together, We have the power to negotiate for the wages and benefits we have earned. But being in a union is about more than just pay and benefits. It's about respect for the work we do. It's about being safe and protected on the job. It's about having the resources and training to do our jobs well. And it's about always having someone to turn to if something's not right. If you want to learn more about how being in a union can make a difference in your life, visit www.askme.org slash difference.